This is Adam Seafew, and I'm here with Scott Stern for episode 12 of the Symptom to Diagnosis podcast. A reminder that the cases that we discuss are drawn from our clinical experiences, but because protecting patient privacy is part of our oath, we never discuss actual patients, and most cases are composites. Our topic this week is chest pain, which is near and dear to our heart. Uh, I could not resist sorry. <laughs> Adam, you are the expert of the day. Do you have a case to present to me? I do have a case. Let me pull it in front of me here. So this is actually a very recent case. This is from a couple months ago. Um, this is a 70-year-old man who presents with, wait for it, chest pain. Um, he's a complicated guy. He's got stage 5 CKD with a GFR kind of right around 10. He's waiting for hemodialysis, but has no indications at this time. He's actually on dialysis in the past, then came off and is getting ready oh, really? to go back on. Okay. Um, and that's due to hypertension. His only other issue is GERD, chronic GERD. He has Barrett's, actually. He's had a couple of endoscopies with biopsies, no dysplasia. He's due for another endoscopy next year. He's got gout. And he came in with a month of nighttime chest pain. He says it wakes him from sleep on many, but not all nights. He says it's pretty reproducible and that it comes after about three to four hours. Really doesn't affect him at other times. When I pushed him, he said it's only happened two other times. Once with sitting, he was on the toilet, kind of leaning over and he felt it. And once with walking his dog, though he actually walks his dog at other times and hasn't had chest pain. Uh, no associated symptoms, you know, no dyspnea, diaphoresis, feelings of impending doom. Um, and his swallowing hasn't changed either. No dysphagia, no adynophagia. He's on kind of the usual meds. He's on allopurinol for his gout. He's on amlodipine, atorvastatin, carvedilol, doxazosin, and vitamin D for his CKD. Um, so that's about it. Any questions or you want to tell me kind of what you're thinking? Well, um, you know, what I guess I'd want to know a little bit more about uh, when he eats compared to when he goes to bed, how this pain compares with his prior GERD, uh, whether he's tried any of the simple antacids and things like that. Sure. So I, I was I was definitely had GERD on my differential and he says, so no pain, um, you know, with eating, obviously no difficulty eating. He can't tell that the pain is particularly worse with a big meal or anything like that before he, you know, went to bed. He actually says that it doesn't really feel like the GERD that he's had in the past. Um, and strangely enough, he, he had been on a meprazole in the past um, and had not retried a meprazole for this episode because it didn't really occur to him that it could be the GERD. Got it. And how long does he say the pain is and how severe is it? Um, uh, so he says... I think I asked him to rate it, and I think he gave me like a five out of ten. Okay. Um, it lasts for fifteen minutes to an hour, um, and he says that when he gets up, you know, sits on the side of the bed, gets up, goes to the bathroom, that it it resolves pretty quickly with that. Is he short of breath when he wakes He's up? Not short of breath. And the quality of the pain is what? It's I would say. He would say somewhere between an aching and a pressure. Okay. So squeezing, I think, is right. what he what he told me. Well, so you know, obviously, it sounds like it's new to him. Yeah. You know, although he's had GERD before, he's coming in with it as though it's a different complaint, and I think you have to take that at face value and assume it is a different complaint because not to do so is potentially a mis-serious diagnosis. 
Um, and it's relatively new. So, you know, you think about um, what are the serious things that could occur that are new in a 70-year-old man with end-stage renal disease. You know, coronary disease can be very prevalent in this population. And it's a um, somewhat atypical story and that's not exertional, but, you know, he's the right age. He's got incredible risk factors for it. It's a little odd that he uh, feels he has to sit up, but he's also describing a squeezing, you know, sensation. So a coronary disease is my first on my list. Um, it could be GERD, but to me, that would be a diagnosis of exclusion. Um, even I wouldn't even, endoscopy wouldn't even particularly convince me until I'd ruled out coronary disease, frankly. With no dysplasia in the past, esophageal carcinoma should be unlikely. Um, doesn't sound pulmonary the way you've described it. It certainly doesn't sound like an acute PE. The reproducible sorts of events would be very typical, and it certainly does not sound like a dissection with recurring events. So, you know, actually, numbers one through three for me would be coronary disease. And, you know, GERD is possible. Another uh, entity that occasionally will present with not nocturnal pain, normally in the belly, is, of course, uh, gallbladder disease, yeah. biliary colic. And every blue moon, people will present with biliary colic that goes to the chest. But that also shouldn't be better when they sit up. I wonder if he's getting ischemia and heart failure from his ischemia when he's laying down, and then he sits up, and at least the heart failure part of it is better. But... Uh, I would say heart failure in and of itself doesn't usually cause chest pain. So I'm still going with coronary disease for the cause of his chest pain. Let me throw in one other thing that I held back from you, because I think you appropriately said, boy, a 70-year-old guy who's got end-stage renal disease from hypertension should not only have vascular disease in his kidneys, but probably has vascular disease everywhere. This guy... Um, can't remember what the indication was, but about 15 months before, actually had a stress test, which was clean. Um, so actually, that doesn't change my okay. thinking at all. Okay. And the reason being is that we know that acute coronary events are typically due to plaque rupture. And the ability of prior stress tests or stress tests in asymptomatic patients right. to predict right. Right, coronary disease later is not good. Right. So you'd say that this guy had some sort of progression a month ago, which has led to these symptoms. Correct. Okay. Okay. Why don't we stop there? Okay. Um, because what I'd like to do is sort of tell you what happened with him first, and then things went on an interesting path pretty quickly, so we can okay. go through that. Okay. All right. So um, you're going to now, I think, take a deep dive into chest pain and give us, uh, I think, five points about diagnosing chest pain. Is that what you would like to do? <laughs> yes. You seem unsure of yourself, like maybe you haven't done 10 of these podcasts before. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm going to take you through five points in the differential and see what you think of these. Um, so the first point is just kind of organizing the differential. Um, and I think most people, and we've talked about this, like to divide the chest pain differential into acute and kind of chronic and subacute um, chest pain. And that's because these really have very different differential diagnoses. With acute chest pain, um, your job is to really first diagnose things that are imminently life-threatening and immediately diagnosable. And the things for me, that's an ST segment elevation MI, an acute coronary syndrome, unstable angina, or an NSTEMI, um, an acute aortic syndrome, mostly kind of thought of as thoracic aortic dissections, or PE. And if that evaluation is negative, that's kind of when you step back and you say, okay, 
it's nothing that I can diagnose right away, and it's probably nothing that's going to kill the person in front of me, but they still could be serious things that I got to work up. And so maybe that's when you get into like pneumonia, esophageal disease, even like Borhoff's and ruptures and things like that that you don't usually see, pericarditis. But I always think that even when you move away from those imminently life-threatening things, you should kind of keep thinking of the imminently life-threatening Right, keep things. circling back until right. you know what it is. Right. Um, the second key point, um, and I'm going to stick with the acute chest pain to begin with, um, and this is just so kind of key to remember, is that anybody who presents with acute chest pain should get an EKG within 10 minutes of arriving at an emergency facility. And so usually that's someone coming to the emergency room, um, you know, where everybody's like the triage nurse says, oh, chest pain, we're going to get an EKG. But even if it's someone in clinic who tells you that like, huh, it's weird, you know, I was on the way here and got chest pain, you probably should stop and get an EKG. Well, I think that's an important point because all too often people assume that if they've showed up in a regular clinic, it's not emergent. And it's only if they've shown up in an emergency room that it's emergent. But right. patients don't know in advance. Right. And every now and then, people show up with terrible things in clinic. It's true. It's true. And usually you ruin your whole clinic there. You're shot then. Um, I'll add on to that. I'm still on number two, therefore. Is the chest x-rays are also really important in the evaluation of chest pain. I think while EKGs we usually don't miss, chest x-rays sometimes are. And I've had a couple of patients that I'm sort of figuring out their chest pain, and it's only on visit two or three that I'm like, you know, I'm just going to get a chest x-ray, and then that gives me the answer. Yeah, absolutely, and acutely, it can even be a pneumothorax, so totally. it's definitely worth doing uh, at the visit. Yep, totally. third point? Third point is going to be moving from acute to chronic, um, and this I just find sort of interesting and helpful. There have been a lot of, um, of studies, uh, often in the family medicine literature, that looks at the five most common causes of chest pain, of sort of chronic chest pain coming into the clinic, and it's pretty much always the same. It's stable angina, it's gastroesophageal reflux disease, musculoskeletal, psychiatric, which is primarily kind of generalized anxiety disorder, panic attacks, and the number five is no diagnosis, um, which sort of tells you one, maybe going along with how you thought about the case, is that chronic stable angina is really common and you should think about it. And that unfortunately, even though chest pain is like a bad thing, you have to recognize that you have to be okay with a lot of uncertainty because sometimes you're just like, ah, I don't know what this is and you never figure it out. I have a question for you with that. Yeah. So psychiatric diagnoses are in there. We every now and then see people with panic who have chest discomfort. But then again, people with myocardial infarctions also, and, and angina, sometimes they have this doom-like feeling. Right. So do you have any clues mm. about sorting out? I mean, you could really be scratching your head here. Yeah. I don't think I'd give you clues about sorting it out. One of the things that I do know, and this literature is a little bit old, um, because MIST-MI used to be common and a terrible thing and was like, I think it was missed MI and missed appendicitis were like the most common things that internists got sued about. <laughs> okay. Right, okay. Um, and that one of the key things to think about misdiagnosis is to look at what people were sent out with a diagnosis. And anxiety was always at the top of that list. So it's probably just to say that before you say this is anxiety, you should really think two or three more times about if you're missing So something. the take-home message is we should be anxious when we say somebody else is anxious? Well done. Okay, good. I got it. Okay, fourth point. Um, fourth key point um, is that women really do present differently from men with MI. 
Um, and we have no idea why this is. It may be that women are generally older when they present with MI, and older right. people generally present in more atypical ways, but there does actually seem to be something just different in how women present. Um, women are more likely to report prodromal symptoms, things like fatigue, insomnia, dyspnea, and traditionally that's made people take their symptoms less seriously because it's like, ah, this sounds like anxiety, right? right? right. Um, as far as common symptoms, other than chest pain, dyspnea, weakness, and fatigue are actually common presenting symptoms. So when people present without chest pain, that's what women may present with. Um, any comments on that? Well, you? I guess it's just telling us in the elderly women who show up acutely with fatigue. I think it's different if someone is right. in a routine appointment and you're saying, how are you doing? And they're like, well, I'm tired, which we see every day. Right, right, right. Versus having made an appointment because something's acutely different. And even if that doesn't sound like it's semi, they're fatigued and weak, we should have a low threshold for checking a cardiogram. Terrific, terrific. Okay, so sticking with um, the issue of MIs in women, I want to talk for a second about spontaneous coronary dissection, which is something that I'm a little bit embarrassed that I didn't know more about, okay? So spontaneous coronary artery dissection is also known as SCAD. Um, and you might think it's, it's not important because it accounts for less than 1% of MIs. But what's interesting is that about 90% of patients with SCAD are women presenting between the age of 47 and 53, okay? So there's this little pocket of people that most of their MIs are actually SCAD. And what's amazing about these women is that they're mostly people without coronary artery disease risk factors. Um, and so although SCAD's uncommon, if you look at a, a proportion of sort of early middle-aged women, lots and lots of those people have SCAD. And if you look at actually women under 50 years old, it's about a third of women who present with MIs have this, this SCAD phenomenon. Um, so it's an uncommon cause of myocardial infarction overall, but its role in MIs among women is actually quite considerable. So what causes this? Yeah, it's a strange disease. Uh, we don't know a lot about this right now. There was actually just recently, we'll say 2020, a very good review in the New England Journal about this. Um, it is it is caused when there's a tear, obviously, within the coronary arteries, which can cause ischemia or infarction either by acute narrowing of the artery or by a thrombus forming. Um, it's associated, interestingly, with fibromuscular dysplasia. Um, and so women who have this, actually anybody who have this, should get worked up for fibromuscular dysplasia because those people have an increased risk of recurrence. That's a really interesting phenomenon. You actually wonder if the fibromuscular dysplasia is then in response to multiple small dissections in the renal artery that have recovered. Huh, interesting. Yeah. I have no idea huh. whether that's true or not. All right. So you've got a fifth point. Okay. My fifth point is really easy. And this is like throwing you a bone. Don't forget pulmonary embolism. Um, I think we get burnt by PE all the time. We certainly get burnt when it, when it doesn't present with chest pain, right? When it presents with less typical, less stereotypical, less obvious things. But I think we even get burnt by it when it does present with chest pain. Absolutely. Uh, right. I mean, you can, you always have to remember pulmonary embolism, essentially. <laughs> I think any doctor who said that they like have not missed a diagnosis of pulmonary embolism yet, they're just not following up on their patients well enough. The best quote I saw on that was, whenever I think there's a pulmonary embolism, there's not. And whenever I'm sure there is one, there's not. <laughs> right, however it. you say that. I get it. I get it. All right, so let's go back to our case. Tell me what happened with this fellow. Okay, it's interesting. So you ranked coronary disease, you know, one, two, and three. I actually ranked GERD as one, two, and three, or maybe I ranked GERD as one and two with coronary artery disease three. 
And I started the guy, I said, well, look, let's get back on your, on your omeprazole, on your Prilosec. Um, let's also do from non, some non-pharmacologic things, you know, raise the head of your bed, so on and so forth. And since this guy had such a history, you know, already of GERD and, and, and Barrett's, I actually scheduled for an EGD right off the bat. I did get an EKG that day, which was unchanged. I actually, I hate to admit it, I sent a troponin, um, which I don't usually do in clinic, but he'd had chest pain the night before and I figured it was an okay thing to do. EKG was the same, troponin was negative. I see him then two weeks later, the same day he had his EGD. His EGD showed no esophagitis. The Barrett's looked the same. And he said there was really no change with the, um, with the omeprazole. The one thing he did tell me, it was after a big storm that we had. You probably remember in the fall. I forgot what it was called. It was like a, I don't know. It's like some, some wind that goes straight and it's got some fancy name. And, and he was cleaning branches. And while he was moving around those branches, he felt the chest pain at that time. Okay, well, that's worrisome. So what would you do now? Um, well, so that's really an interesting question. I would say his probability of disease is at least moderate. It's not... Um, and so the real question is whether you want to go to some form of stress test versus going on angiography. Um, you know, when people, we'll talk about this later, when people have a very high pretest probability, the right test is, you know, angiography. And when it's in between, it's kind of a good person for a stress test. So I'd probably do a nuclear stress test on him. Boy, we're disagreeing on everything on this guy. So <laughs> I, I went through that. Um, I, think, I think at that point, maybe because I'd been sitting on this for two weeks and I was worried, I was just like, this guy needs to be calf. Your angst was up. Right. Um, <laughs> okay. And it was a big call, though, because, you know, he's coming in with a creatinine of, I don't know, five, six, seven at this point. So I was sort of recognizing that by doing this calf, I'm probably hastening him onto dialysis. I have to say I was sort of arguing with the nephrologist that I thought he should already be on dialysis. So maybe this was, you know, me pushing things along. So interestingly, he... Um, I get him admitted the next day. He gets his cath the next day, and he's got absolutely clean coronaries. Wow. But his left ventricular pressures were just through the roof. I forget the numbers, but, you know, diastolic pressures, 35, you know, wow. um, and high right-sided pressures as well. Interestingly, he went right from the cath lab as planned to dialysis, and the guy was fixed. Um, had no symptoms. Again, I saw him two weeks later. He'd been getting, you know, three times a week dialysis since then. And he's like, no, never have these symptoms again. So the thought is that he was going into heart failure at night. And not the heart failure was causing pain, but maybe demand ischemia from the elevated left ventricular and diastolic pressures being that high. I guess so. Right? One would have yeah, to yeah, guess. yeah, yeah. No, that was our explanation, though. Because, right, because heart failure and fluid overload should not hurt. Should not and I wouldn't want people to think that they could, if anybody has chest pain, you could say, oh, it's just heart failure, Absolutely. not evaluate it. Absolutely. And I actually thought a lot about this guy, and I asked him a bunch of questions, because I was like, you know, was this really just PND, paroxysmal right. nocturnal dyspnea, right. that I wasn't getting a good enough history on? But even questioning him at that point, you know, he was really, I was not short of breath. It was pain. And I got to say, the guy, you know, he had no edema, he had no rails, nothing else was going on. Well, you know, there's interesting studies on heart failure, though, that have shown the limited sensitivity of all the clinical findings right. for heart failure. Right. You know, they did a study where they cathed everyone with severe heart failure, and 40% of them had no JVD, no edema, uh, no crackles, and they all had wedge pressures of over 22. Oh. 
So um, it is interesting. It's an interesting presentation. And he never had chest pain again. And once they kept his volume satisfying, he was Never good. had chest pain. We're six months out now. And he's actually doing great. Is he still on dialysis? He's still on dialysis, yeah. Well, that's an interesting case. So um, that, you know, it just goes to show it, this is a challenging diagnosis. And it keeps all of us on our toes even when we're aged. Right. So I think we're going on to fingerprints, common misconceptions, pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge. So Adam, how about some fingerprints? Okay, so my first fingerprint is um, for MI. Uh, there are many fingerprints in chest pain, interestingly. But a patient who presents with chest pain, which radiates to both arms, amazingly, the likelihood ratio of that is 9.7 for MI. So that should really make you think. Um, it's much higher than chest pain that radiates to the left side, which is, of course, uh, you know, kind of classic for the presentation. That is so interesting. I just had a family member who I told you about yeah, earlier yeah. who presented out of state with chest discomfort and bilateral arm pain. He wouldn't go see the doctor. Two months later, they decided he had an infarction. So there you go. Wow. All right, so my fingerprint is that uh, pericardial friction rubs are basically 100% specific for pericarditis. <laughs> not surprisingly. There we go. Probably right. one of those great examples of not terribly sensitive, right. but if you hear it, that's right. what it is. Um, since there aren't, as I said, many clinical fingerprints, I was just going to throw out some diagnostic tests and the likelihood ratios just to prove that our diagnostic tests are really good. And if you read what the definition of, you know, of how we define MI, it's based on these tests and it's not surprising. So in a person with chest pain and ST elevations, the like positive likelihood ratio of those ST elevations is 53. Wow, okay. That's impressive. A new Q wave, 25. Positive troponins, 48. Um, so you see all of those things and you've made the diagnosis. Okay, good. All right, so let's go on to common misconceptions. What are we confused about, Adam? This was a tough one. I actually had a hard time coming up with common misconceptions for chest pain. Um, I think the one thing I thought of is troponins in end-stage renal disease, kind of maybe going back to our guy. Um, you know, there's this idea that people with end-stage renal disease or even just renal, you know, chronic kidney disease have um, um, elevated troponins, false positives are common, and so they're basically worthless um, in people who have chest pain when they have chronic kidney disease or end-stage renal disease. And that's not the case, right? Um, when someone has an infarct with chronic kidney disease, with end-stage renal disease, they will have the expected rise and fall of troponins. Their troponins may not go back to baseline, they'll fall more slowly, but they're still very useful in making the So we've just reset the baseline. Exactly, exactly. Well, I would say one misconception that it took me a while to learn, and I learned by mistake the first time, is that pulmonary embolism sometimes present chronically, uh, especially with shortness of breath, not so much with chest pain, but because we were talking about yeah. chest pain and PEs, it made it come to mind. So yeah. sometimes it's not the acute presentation that's surprising. Yeah. I have to say, I'm happy that I haven't missed these, but two of the most difficult PE diagnoses that I've made in the last couple of years, and the ones that sort of made me pat myself on the back right. was that was people with chronic one person with chronic chest pain and one person with a subacute change in exercise tolerance um, that's a very scary uh, animal for sure it just sucks because you know you think about the presentation goes all the way from completely asymptomatic right, right, from right, some right. of the orthopedic studies to death right so it means you can have everything in between right right <laughs> all right so pet peeves you can start uh okay so the thing I hate the most, and this one might be one of my longest pet peeves because it dates back to when I was like a resident, is people with people in the emergency room with chest pain 
pushing on their chest to try to find out like, is there ten are they tender? You know, who cares, right? Um, there are a lot of people who have acute MIs whose chests are tender, um, and you sh- just should not rely on that. Right. I mean, it hurts if you push hard enough, right? Well, mine is, uh, and I've seen this many times over the years, is having a patient with chest pain where the, the problem is stated as rule out MI. We should never state a problem as rule out something. It might be the top of your differential, and there's no doubt it's one of your tasks, but the problem with calling chest pain rule out MI is that once you rule it out, you're likely not to think anything further. It, that aggravates the hell out of me, I just got to say. Never do that. It's chest pain, and then you have a differential, and you work them up. Right. How often have you talked to people in the hospital where they're like, good news, you know, you don't, you haven't had an MI, you can go home. And the person's like, but what about my chest pain? Right. Right. What what, what, what else did I have? Right. Um, My next one is is one of those classic old-time diagnoses, is viral pleurisy, okay? This is a tough one because, you know, people do get chest pain and people do get chest pains and, and pleural effusions from viral infections, okay? I mean, that happens. Um, But the fact is there are so many bad things that cause chest pain and chest pain with effusions, right? Or chest pain with, uh, you know, with pleuritic chest pain that you just really have to make sure you haven't missed any anything before you say, oh, you know, I bet this is Coxsackie virus. I had a case like that recently from someone who was in the emergency room. I called them up. I'm like, what are you thinking? How do you know that's what that is, you know? All right, well, mine that I've seen multiple times now, even by cardiologists, is taking a negative stress test as prima facie evidence that the patient doesn't have coronary disease. You've got to account for the pretest probability. And I've had at least three people in the last 10 years who were very high pretest probability patients who had the right demographics for coronary disease, symptoms that were typical, and either a normal stress test or a very minimally abnormal stress test, even with imaging. Because the problem is that sometimes people have balanced ischemia. And every now and then when the stress test is normal and you really think it was going to be abnormal, you have to persist and get an angiogram uh, just to find out that they actually have triple vessel disease. And so you could argue in those patients where your pretest probability is very high, like yours was with this patient, to go right to angiography. It's not unreasonable to do a stress test if you saw one vessel disease and you were pretty confident that the rest of the ventricle looked normal, you might stop. But a normal stress test or a minimally abnormal stress test in those patients, you have to think twice before you say you're done. Yeah. You know, I I torture our medical students a lot for this. And I think one of the big issues is you really have to think about why you're getting that stress test, right? Um, There are people where where you'll be doing your stress test to diagnose coronary disease, right? And those are the people, you know, maybe middle-aged men um, with atypical chest pain or younger women with atypical or atypical chest pain, where you're really doing it for diagnosis. Right. And in those people, if it's negative, you'll probably stop. Right. People who are at high risk, you're really not getting that stress test to diagnose coronary disease, right? You're doing it to risk stratify them. Exactly. And you're saying, you know, does this people have does this person have multivessel coronary disease that they need PCI, or do they have single vessel coronary disease, in which case I can do medical management? And so if your stress test is negative in one of those people, your risk stratifying test just failed you and you got to do something else. I, you know, but people miss this all the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. All the time. Um, all right. So uh, how about clinical pearls? Clinical pearls. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to go with one of your favorites here. Um, PE. Um, it's interesting to remember that somewhere between a quarter and a half of patients with a PE 
have a pleural effusion. Um, they're usually larger PEs. They're usually associated with more pleuritic chest pain. Um, but that's one of those things that doesn't always come to mind for me. And so in your differential diagnosis, I guess, of pleural effusion or chest pain with pleural effusion, you got to remember PE. I had a case like that recently, a fellow who had very atypical chest pain, who, as we said, we got chest X-ray on, you know, middle age, yeah. and he had a very small pleural effusion, but there was no reason for him to have a pleural effusion, and the CTA was yeah. positive. Yeah. So, really good point. Good one. Um, my my clinical parole is you have to remember that negative troponins don't rule out co- important coronary disease. They will they do rule out an infarction almost by definition because dead tissue or tissue that's dying releases troponin. But unstable angina and angina can be associated with negative troponins if there's no associated infarction. And I have seen many times people who've been evaluated for chest pain, their EKG is non-diagnostic and their troponins are negative and coronary disease is taken off the list. And that's not an appropriate response to that. Right. Right. It, It may mean very well that they're okay to leave the emergency room to have follow-up assessment in the next couple of days. Right. Right. Um, but nothing beyond that. Uh, maybe my last one, and this is just something that I've been burnt on is just remember that there are causes of angina other than coronary disease. Um, Probably the most important ones are anemia, hyperthyroidism, aortic stenosis. Um, And I, in my career, have sent two people home from my office who I've recognized stable angina in, and I've set them up for, you know, an evaluation of their angina. Um, Fortunately, on both of them, I sent CBCs, and it came back, you know, that they had hematocrits in the low 20s, um, which explains their angina and also makes me realize that my anemia exam is pretty piss poor. <laughs> you can look at the eyes, you know. I know. I've heard this. I know. They were wearing masks. I couldn't see their eyes. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> okay. So um, we hope you found this episode of the Sim Diagnosis podcast useful and a bit enjoyable. As a reminder, our textbook, Symptom to Diagnosis, an Evidence-Based Guide, takes a much deeper dive into how to think about and reason through the diagnosis of medical presentations. The book is available in print through all the usual places, on your handheld device, and also available and fully searchable via the Access Medicine website, which is available worldwide from McGraw-Hill. Thank you. Thank you. The music for the S2D podcast is courtesy of Dr. Malin Martinez. Mm-hmm.